and welcome to Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 89 with Curran Sheldon, DP of the documentary King Cole, which recently premiered at Sundance. Enjoy. Yeah, have you been uh, watching anything interesting lately? Uh, you know, I haven't really. Um, so about this time last year, and nothing against nothing against them because there's so many high quality television shows but my wife and i kind of just said you know what let's let's not watch tv for a year um it seemed like there were so many good tv shows and you know you get kind of stuck in that endless loop right of watching like what is basically i think a 10-hour movie instead of just watching like a great film um and so we've really we really started focusing on like let's just watch films you know let's not spend so much time in front of just watching you know tvs and getting sucked into the the cliffhangers and the you know it's like a pulp novel in a lot of ways um so no i've i've sort of just focused on reading more and watching films rather than uh watching tv but even film wise uh, we have an 18 month old so it's that's really he's really torn into my uh sitting around and watch tv uh time so and movie time but um yeah it was a very light year for watching stuff for me actually I, uh, I tend to, I can't see my problem is I, maybe it is the same problem. I, I can't get too into television shows unless I'm like incredibly interested. I'm not mm-hmm. like even game of Thrones. Like I was like, that seems like a lot. Uh, I'm not like, it's cool, but I'm not, you know, like I think breaking no. bad had me by the throat, but that was like yep. a global phenomenon, you know, but yeah, same. I, I've been watching mo- mostly, uh, films and. Mm-hmm. Especially trying to trying to become more film literate, you know, f- trying to seek out films that, you know, like the whole Criterion Collection or whatever, just things that that I wouldn't immediately jump for, you know, and trying yeah. to kind of self educate because it's easy to buy like the you know, Alfred Hitchcock box set and be like I'm educated, but you know, yeah, no, for sure. My my wife, who we're um, filmmaking partners, she is much more. I know she has an MFA in media art. You know, she studied film. She's gone sort of that deep dive of, you know, film history. And I've done a little bit of that, but it's also something kind of on my list, especially for this year is, you know, watching the, you know, the great classics that maybe I've missed my first 37 years. So, uh, yeah, that's definitely, definitely a big goal for mine as well. Watched quite a few Terrence Malick films at the end of last year, which was nice, uh, especially some of his earlier stuff, which I'd never seen, uh, but did you? But yeah, uh, Criterion Collection. That's a good one as well. Well, that was uh, I've said this a few times on this podcast, but my pandemic project was this podcast and just buying up tons of Criterion Blu-rays because I was in a real uh, self-education kick, you know, because I couldn't shoot anything. So I was like, "Well, <laughs> I shouldn't say I couldn't. I know you made a whole fucking web series <laughs> during the pandemic, but goes. Uh, <laughs> I suppose I chose not to." Uh, like, yeah, spent, spent the time to try to like shore up the old, uh, back of the brain knowledge in that way, you know? No, for sure. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, it was, uh, obviously a tough time. I was so much work, obviously dried up for everybody, especially in this industry, right? Documentary, you have to get so close to people that it's pretty hard to do when you can't. Um, and so luckily I had a friend who lived nearby for the the series who has done, done some acting and she's done some directing and says like, well, let's just do a bunch of like outdoor, you know? comedic web series and so that was just like a thing to do for a few months to get through the toughest portion of you know not having work and not much to do so um and it was nice you know i haven't done a ton of like just sort of narrative scripted stuff even if it was skit based um and for comedic value but uh it was a lot of fun just to kind of keep those the muscles the muscles uh tuned up 
Yeah. Did uh, this is kind of like a instantly deeper question than normally to start, but like, uh, I feel like it can be kind of there can be a um, negative view of people making like YouTube video, like oh, if you if you get success on not just making YouTube videos because no one will see those, but having a successful YouTube something, let alone trying to make like a career out of it can be seen as a negative if you're trying to get into more professional uh, workspaces. Did you find that that, I mean, maybe it wouldn't necessarily happen in the documentary space, but do what kind of uh, response did you see from that positive or negative? Yeah. I mean, I think the, I mean, the series is definitely not for successful enough where I was having tens of thousands of subscribers and was considered a YouTuber, right? It was more just something fun to do uh, for a few months. And uh, Funny or Die published a lot of them. And and that, again, you know, there's, I'm not sure there's a ton of people who I work with on a professional basis who uh, even saw the films, but the people who did, whether it's just, you know, people I've worked with in the past who are Facebook friends or um, when I would post them, you know, I think everyone was just ready for a little bit of a laugh, right? And sort of to a little bit of, you know, despite all the sort of dark moments and obviously real serious things that were occurring, it's, you know, some some levity, it's um, sort of the, the weird cultural, um insanity that we we're all going through right and it was kind of like a, you know making the films of just like having a social distance hangout and sort of the challenges of that um i think allowed a lot of people to just be like oh i'm not you know everyone else is having the same experiences right like we're all kind of you know separated and, and isolated but we're all kind of doing the same thing and trying to cope in our own ways and so i think people appreciated it for that you know whether it was just friends or people in the industry but you know it definitely wasn't successful enough for people to be like oh he's just a youtuber um and I'd already been, you know, pretty much in, in the professional film world before that. So, um, I think, yeah, more than anything else, just sort of a, a fun thing for people to, to have a little smile in their life at the time. Um, but no, it hasn't really, hasn't really come up in the last couple of years since I did it, uh, other than like, Hey, you made those funny quarantine life videos. That was funny. So that was pretty much it. You, you mentioned that your, uh, partner had an MFA in, in film and whatnot. Did you also like go to film school or how'd you come to cinematography? I didn't. I, I definitely took sort of the the roundabout way to kind of what I do now. Um, I studied writing um, and journalism in college, and then I went to grad school for professional writing. And so the first two or three years after grad school, I actually worked for a travel startup in New York City. Um, and it, more than anything else, I chose to start doing video for the lifestyle. You know, it wasn't you know, I, I love movies. Photography was a bit of a hobby. Um, I just did for fun on my travels, but you know, what I really wanted to do was to have a life that wasn't at a, in a, um, office, you know, like I was working at a travel startup. There was only eight of us. Like it was still a very cool place to work. I loved working there, but at the end of the day, I was inside for, you know, nine, 10 hours a day sitting at a desk. And I just knew that's not how I wanted to, to live. Um, and so this was, you know, early 2010s, 2011, 2012. And, you know, working at a travel startup, you know, my job as a, I was a content manager for a website, you know, I was trying to pull in writing photos and videos. And I just kind of figured out like, wow, there's, you know, for 2012, I thought there'd be like more travel, good travel videos or travel documentaries that, you know, we could sort of populate the site and I just couldn't really find them. Um, and so I recruited a buddy and said, let's, let's go make films, you know, like we can save up enough money. We can teach ourselves how to shoot. Um, and then we could just make short documentaries. And, and so we did, we worked for another nine, 10 months. I think we saved up, it seemed like a lot at the time, but maybe seven or $8,000 each, like not a ton of money. Um, and then we just started traveling and said that, 
hey, every week we'll do one short documentary on a fascinating person that we meet, find, um, edit it in a week and, and put it up. And so we created a, a series um, called Humanity and did that for two or three years and kind of unbeknownst to me, it was sort of our film school um, just by doing her. You know, we would go and shoot and be like, man, why does this look bad? Like, why does it look jerky? Like, why is like it look, oh, we have to focus on shutter speed. And they're like, how do you get that blurry background? You know, all these little things that you do when you're trying to figure out how to shoot. Um, and so it was just sort of a, a, a kind of an amazing experience where you're always out, always shooting, always in different scenarios. And though I never had in my mind that, ooh, I want to be a documentary DP or a DP in general, I was sort of training myself for that, right? Just by being in an incredible amount of different scenarios and sort of tough conditions. So um, yeah, that's kind of how I came came about it. And then, you know, soon after um, I started doing video, kind of still training myself in New York before I left for that trip, uh, my wife, who was just a friend of a friend at the time, was the only person I knew who did video. And so I was like, you know, contacting her with my own questions about my 60D, like, how do you do this? And how do you do this? And then what does this mean? So uh, that's how we started chatting. And then a couple of years later, got married and we've been working together ever since. And uh, that's, she's kind of one of the main reasons that's why I, I do more of the, the bigger doc stuff now. Um, that's been her passion and sort of her focus in, in the last decade. I imagine the uh, sort of journalism background helps the documentary brain, uh, you know, kind of create the story. Cause that's one thing that, um, I've always said that editing makes you a better DP, but certainly writing uh, is kind of the the other side of that coin in terms of uh, if one skill set was going to enhance your cinematography. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I actually, every time um, I speak with students or people who are learning, they say like, you know, what are, what's your biggest tip? I always say edit your own stuff. Yes, that's number one, right? Is like when you edit your own word you're the one getting mad at yourself right like when you when an editor gets mad at you you don't hear from them right they just don't you don't talk to them most editors you know they take your footage and they they work as a director on whatever whatever it is they're working on but when you're editing your own stuff you're like man like why is like come on Curran, like steady up <laughs> like hold the shot like all these different things that you sort of teach yourself to do um but i totally agree that this or the second part of that is is you know the writing or the journalism or just the shaping of a story right it's like you know, pretty images are interesting to watch for about, you know, 45 seconds, right? After that, you have to have a story, you have to have characters, you have to be able to keep people's attention with something that they're emotionally attached to. That's it's hard to get emotionally attached to just pretty images. Um, and so I think, yeah, I mean, journalism, writing, crafting a story, all of that is intertwined with cinematography, intertwined with editing to actually make a, a piece of work that is either enjoyable to watch or um, or educational, whatever it is that you're trying to, to get across. So it's definitely the combination of all those factors. Yeah. Did you uh, end up coming up with a, obviously at first you were probably thinking of way too many things, but once you got into the groove of it, where did you kind of come up with maybe like a formula that you knew was going to make not only a good uh, mini doc about a person, but also um, your, like whatever your flavor of that was? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, when we started, we were really focused on sort of more inspirational stories, right? People who were either trying to do things to help others or, um, you know, just had, a, had an interesting story in, around the world. And so, you know, I think, you know, it's at, at this point, it's probably a little bit of a, you know, Vimeo staff pick cliche sort of thing, but we had sort of that same, um, you know, approach where it's kind of you have those 
openings with like an inspirational quotes and lots of that sound and then you sort of drop that and move into like the bulk of the story and the person's backstory before sort of finalizing about like what what it is they do and you know when each film is you know three to, to five minutes um you know there's there's definitely sort of a, a formula kind of, how, of how you do that um but it's you know it's it's kind of keep trying different things and we tried to push ourselves when we were doing our series just to like well you know what if we did split screen or you know whether it was technique based or editing based or editing tricks or you know maybe what if we told a story with you know where we actually didn't hear any of the voiceover right it was just images and um you know natural sound and so we, we definitely tried different things um just to see kind of how it would feel and look and sort of what emotions we could we could uh to showcase and so um well, yeah, I think there always was a formula, right? Because at the end of the day, we're like, hey, let's not sit around and edit for four days of the week. Let's go out and like actually have some fun. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we, we definitely yeah, tried to shoot in, it, shoot in a day or two and edit in a day or two. So we'd have a few days in between each each video. Um, so that sort of more than anything else uh, dictated, you know, how quickly we did something or or whether what formula we, we attached to it. Yeah. With the... Uh were you kind of trying to study um, sort of the cinematic language at all? You know, like what each shot says about that situation or was it kind of more just verite getting the shot and then, and then moving on? I think, you know, I've always, because I was like, thinking about this the other day of like, we even won King Cole, we were at Sundance, people were kind of talking to me about the cinematography and, um, you know, I think in general, I'm just a very intuitive shooter. Like I, I kind of let myself in the moment and on the shoot day sort of see and i think that's because of how i learned right just two years of traveling all over the world and a bunch of different landscapes and a bunch of different cultures and a bunch of different places where as soon as i arrive i'm like okay how do i get the best shot for this story um and i've i've storyboarded i've done shot lists you know i've done all that and then once i got on location i'm like oh no that the plan i had is actually not as good as the one i come up with right here right, right. um and, and so sometimes that's, you know, once in once or twice in my life, that's gotten me into a little bit of trouble, but generally I feel, um, like I can really sort of find the shots that I want to get on, you know, in the moments, you know, once I see kind of all the different places that, that I am and what the, how the characters are moving and have, um, you know, the way that they're moving through the scene. And so, um, I think that's, that's one of my strengths. Um, but you know, for, in terms of like this, the cinematic language, I think it was all subconscious, you know, like I, I watch movies, I love movies. Um, and when you're out shooting and you're shooting that much, you know, just shooting every single day, um, you know, we, we, I do pull it in and you just start realizing like, Ooh, this shot like feels good for some reason, right? Like, why does it feel good? And, and luckily I had you know, a good friend with me. And so we could sort of discuss those things and, and kind of come up with, um, not by any means groundbreaking, like ways to shoot, right? It's like, it's all been done before. It's all been tried. It's all been, it's all been shown, but sort of discovering it for the first time on your own, right? Sort of as you're teaching yourself how to do the skill, um, felt like, felt like a big moment, you know, felt like, felt like a, a big discovery. Uh, even if we were, you know, the 10,000th person to discover it. Well, it's, you know, it kind of goes something I've said a bunch on this podcast is like, uh, you can learn the rules, I suppose, you know, there's a base, there's a base level of knowledge that every cinematographer should have. But at the end of the day, you end up realizing that like feeling is more important. It, I mean, unless that feeling is bad, like, but if you, you know, if I can't remember who said it, but you get into whatever art form you in, you're in because you have good taste. I think this might've been David Lynch. Um, but if you have good taste and, and you are someone who's aesthetically minded like that, um, 
it's better to trust your feelings on a shot because that's the, as my old directing teacher said, the film is just uh, getting the audience to feel the emotion when you want them to feel it. So if you feel it as the DP, they'll feel it as the audience versus you trying to like shoehorn a um, rule of thirds or whatever the hell, you know, into mm. a shot. So for sure. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And as a documentary DP, especially right when you don't know when someone's going to say something, when you don't know when the emotion's going to arise, is that you just are always ready for that, right? You're always kind of looking for that. And so you you kind of to some degree, you know, once you have you know sort of the basics down, right? Sort of the basic you know cinematography um, tenets that you've learned and the rules and the things that you know can you know whether it's a low shot or a high shot or an eye level shot or you know through through something right or you're dirtying the frame whatever it might be like once you sort of have those and you sort of can naturally do them on the spot then you're just always looking for you're looking for emotion you're listening for emotion you're listening for kind of what's being said and, and what's most important and then sort of the secondary to that is you know okay how's the best way to capture this and you know hopefully in some degree if you do it enough that part is so natural that it just clicks right you're like oh no this person's talking he's that person's saying something important i need to get that now and when you do that you can do it in a cinematic way um and i think that's what's kind of you know fun about about documentary work um you know doing doing some narrative work and fiction work it's like also a lot of fun to like you know you can do it exactly as you want which is sort of always the, sort of the frustrating thing with documentary dp work is you know, you don't always have the opportunity to do the lighting the way you want it. So, or, you know, shoot in the location you want or shoot from the exact angle you want. But it does teach you that whatever the person is saying, right, whatever the story is, that is more important than, you know, your idea of a perfect cinematic image, right? Because it's all driven by story. It's all driven by character. Um, and then when you do do commercial work or narrative work, you always have that in your mind. It's right. You could do something cool. But instead, what if you actually just like focused on the emotion and, and the point of the story um, and not draw too much attention, right? If you don't need to, to the cinematography. Yeah. I mean, well, the other thing too is like having done a, a decent amount of, uh, I would I would call it docu-style work. Um, I find that like, especially, you know, for like corporate clients or rush jobs, if it's narrative, like it's really nice to to know that in the back of your head, you've got, I'll just show up. I know where the light's coming from. I'll modify it with one or two and then we'll go like, it'll look great. And the, the, the yep. more experienced I've gotten as a cinematographer, the more I've realized, like I used to overlight the shit out of things. And it's like, it really is just like find a window, give it a little wrap, maybe an edge. Yep. Good. Like nine yep. times out of 10, that looks the most natural and looks the most compelling, you know, for sure. Yeah, I've done a lot of corporate work and with uh, different hotel companies. And so you're always trying to find, you know, like doing interviews in a, a master suite. And nine times out of 10, you know, I just put them in front of a big window, pull the shear. So it's just this diffuse light and then just do some negative fill on the other side. And you're like, mm, that looks perfect. <laughs> right. Um, you know, you can carry around a bunch of lights and try to light things, but it is sort of a, um, sort of an ironic thing that kind of the more equipment you use sometimes the more fake it looks right the more you're trying to make it look realistic or dramatic kind of the, the worse off it gets um so i'm a big proponent of sort of the the one light with uh, some bouncer fill or whatever it might be um then rather than you know trying to do five different lights and you know put all the different temperatures and kind of make it look a certain way but that's that's probably the documentary dp in me i love for natural light for sure well, and the, I don't know when, 
I discovered it. But the just realizing that negative fill was a thing. I think it's because because I learned on sixteen millimeter, and they didn't tell us about negative fill because they they would the idea that you would need less light was absurd when you're you know ISO two hundred <laughs> film. Uh, <laughs> and then we get digital, and and you know I guess only recently. Same thing with old DV. You know it's it's still you needed a ton of light. So um, the idea of removing light, I think, is not new, but certainly, uh, in fashion now. And I remember, I don't remember when, but making that discovery of like, oh, I should just carry like a four by floppy of ultra bounce everywhere. If yeah. I can fit in yeah. my car and that'll just solve a lot of problems. For sure. Yeah. Or even one of those collapsible discs with a, you know, black side. It's like, oh, just clamp that onto a light stand. You're pretty much good to go for a lot of things, especially it comes to, to, to sort of corporate and documentary interviews. It's like that can go a long way if you have that. Dude, the big one. Well, or our, I also used to carry, I had to tear it up for uh, a, a gig, but I used to just carry a bolted duvetine that I'd throw on a C-stand. I'm yeah, like yeah. nervous that those, those fold out reflectors, like the black is still kind of reflective. Yeah, like I don't, yep. I don't many want it to <laughs> matte. Yeah, sweet, but yeah, just matte and easy. Yeah, but the uh, the thing that I find when doing like you're saying, like having to film in a suite or whatever, is uh, I got this uh, master. What is it, Roscoe? I think Lee. Maybe it's Lee. <laughs> um, like master locations gel pack, which are just these little eight and a half by eleven gels that. Uh, so I'd go around because you get into no, none of these corporate people care about the lights in their ceilings. So none of them match, you know, they're all different color temperatures. And I'm just going around with my color meter and like taping up into the ceiling. So they're all the same color. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. My, my number one rule when going into any sort of hotel or sort of corporate setting is like, just turn all the lights off pretty much. <laughs> just turn them all off. And then if I need to like bounce something into a ceiling or yeah, add my own lights or, you know, just diffuse the sunlight coming through a window, that's always better. Um, so it's yeah, pretty much any, any house or room or place I go in, the first thing I do is yeah, turn everything off and then we'll start from there. The, the light I just picked up, <laughs> we're going to get nerdy about it. The light I just picked yeah. up that I'm, I'm very excited about, uh, I was just telling someone else about this a different episode, but, um, it's, it's the IntelliTech mega light cloth. Have you seen this? Oh, I have not. Hold on. Yeah. They make them in Boulder, I think, or Denver. And it's a three and a half by four foot collapsible LED blanket. Oh, sweet. Yeah. folds into a one by one square. So you can chuck it in your backpack. The ballast is kind of big, but still you could put it in a backpack and then it comes with a frame and diffusion and a grid. And so you've basically just got a portable window. And so that's just Whoa. my key light for everything now is just bring that little jam it up. And, and it's so big that like no one, it doesn't look like a light, you know, and oh, screw it with light or anything like that. You know, it, it just does the work for you. And it's super accurate. Oh, that's great. I love that. Again, I'm the color with... meter guy. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't used them as much as I would like, but last year I got the, um, the light bridge, any reflectors. Have you ever seen these? Oh yeah, the CRLS man. I tried yeah. to talk to those guys at Cinegear. Was it Cinegear? Adobe Mac? Uh, Cinegear? And just they were very. Uh, I can tell that they have sold enough that they don't need to talk to anyone. <laughs> totally. 
<laughs> this too, they're they're pretty sweet. But I mean, you can stick them on a stand and then just beam a light from anywhere, um, just you know, and hit them. It bounces off and just creates a sort of beautiful, soft light. And what's cool about it is you can you know put it pretty darn close to someone. Whereas you put a soft box in front of them, it would still be you know pretty harsh. Um, so in tight situations, you know, you can just bounce a light off these things and it just comes off looking just so soft and, and pretty with a, oh, it's just great. Um, but I have not used them as much as I'd love, like, because I travel so much for work and when you have, you know, they're coming a giant case, right? So they're like, you know, of all the things you can bring, it's unfortunately something that often gets left behind on, on, uh, plane trips. But if I do anything locally and stuff, I always pull them out and they're, yeah, they're pretty, but man, I mean, there's so much cool stuff happening with lighting right now that. Uh, um, you know, there's just so much you can do. Yeah. Well, and thank God the LEDs are getting, the other really good LEDs are the, uh, the Kino flow, um, not the tubes, mm-hmm. but just the, the LED panels that they have again, like yep. super accurate. This is the exact conversation I was just having with a different TV, like two, two <laughs> quote unquote episodes ago or yesterday for me. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the cool thing about the Kinos is they have, uh, camera LUTs in them. So if you tell the light what camera you're shooting on, it will not create a color outside of that camera's gamut. Whoa. So you'll never get that that very like overset, you know, you'll like throw the factory LED on on something and then like something will pop too hard or whatever. They won't do it. And I I was getting a hundred TLCI out of these lights in certain on certain settings. Um, Wow. So they're oh that's cool. I've been screaming about those for a minute now. Cause like no one, everyone, you know, obviously aperture, obviously we've got the sky panels, which unfortunately yep. sky panels are not very accurate. Those don't yeah. photometrically are not great. Um, but the, the keynotes are, I'm going to also message you now with every light purchase I make and just see yeah. what your reading readings are. <laughs> I, uh, so what I did was I, a few, this was like a couple of years ago, but the guy who's developing what well, was supposed to be a website. And then he's like, I'm going to make it an app. And then I was like, crap, this is too hard. I was going to make it a website again. But I went to film tools here in LA and just metered every light on their showroom floor. And then also a bunch of lights that I had owned and stuff. And so I wanted to make a, or I'm making, I guess someone else is making a, a comparator or at least you could either use it to compare or you could just look it up basically, but would just show objectively what the, you know, readings are for all of these various lights. Um, cause that's I thought amazing. that'd be useful. Cause, cause you know, like a, a light meter or a color meter is $1,800. Yeah. And obviously right. the readings are going to be, they're going to differ between each unit situation or whatever, but a general idea of like, mm-hmm. oh crap, you know, these, like the old apertures used to be awful. Now they're well, I'm better, but like the original yeah. ones were terrible. Godox makes a decent or um, Nanlite actually. There's stuff. Nanlite, yeah. I've got some Nanlites. I, I like Nanlite. Nanlite and some of the new apertures. Yeah. That's kind of my, my go to kit. Um, you know, obviously affordability is awesome, but also, you know, it's easy to easily to port them around and, and, you know, just having nice, even just the app um, connection yeah. that some of these guys have is just so useful. Once you like put a light up and you're like, I, I don't want to bring it back down to change color temp or, you know, change, uh, output. And so just having that is, you know, th- in a lot of ways, that kind of speed, it's so much more useful to me than like an extra, you know, one or two score on like a CRI or something. Right. So, oh, for sure. um, I'm always, I'm always looking for that kind of stuff. Um, but some of the new name lights, especially I'm definitely interested in trying some of those out. Yeah. The, uh, the one the one time I used this is a few years ago, but when I was finally introduced to wireless DMX, 
I was like, why can't we do this with everything? And then Aperture was like, well, you can. Yeah, you, you can. I don't own any Aperture. Like, I own those MCs, but like, yeah, like, thank you guys exist. Yeah, I just want, I just want more lights to have the X, Y coordinates. Because again, if you have oh, yeah. a color meter, right? Like on the, on the Kinos, like if mm-hmm. corporate interview, whatever, or I really, I keep saying corporate interview, but this, this applies to any time you're trying to match a light. Like if mm-hmm. your character is sitting in an environment and you're modifying existing lights, or even you're on a stage and you've got a film light that you're using, like a you know, M18, whatever the hell, you just meter it, get the XY, plug it into the Kino, and it gives you the exact same light. And it's just so valuable and saves so much time. No, totally. There was just one light that was just announced that have and it has that uh, sort of XY. Um, I can't remember what which it was. Was it one of the new NAM lights that was just announced like last month? I'll have to look that look that one up. But I think there is a way yeah. you can you can sort of just change either sort of the the magenta third green shift or anything like that. Just kind of just enough to match something else. So yeah, that's the that's the other one is uh, without that system kind of like crossing your eyes and fudging them so so you can see two lights and, and like <laughs> adjust the yeah, RGB yeah. like that's that seems close okay moving on it's close enough yeah <laughs> that's great were you were you in uh utah for sundance i was yep so um our latest film premiered in, at sundance um and so we premiered on, on this past mondays but we got there on thursday so yeah we were there for about 10 days Jeez, how I've I've yet to go to it. Uh, how was that experience for you? It was fun. You know, I've I've never been actually. Um, my wife, who's the director of the film that we worked on, she's been once before, but this is the first time we've had a film at Sundance. Um, and so it was just a it was just an awesome experience. I mean, it's I know they've been online the last two years. So this is the first in purge since Sundance in three years, and so you can just kind of tell everyone's jazz to like be together watching movies and. You know have theaters full and it's just cool to go to a film festival where um you know you have five screenings and you know two or three of them are sold out and you know there's are just also really well attended and you know go, you go to other premieres and you know there's a lot of people in the audience right you never like go to a screening no matter what time of day or what category it's in where there isn't somebody you know a pretty good amount of people in the audience you know excited to watch that film so to be in that environment, you know, just movie lovers and artists, um, it is just really, really exciting. Yeah. The, I, I also, I mean, I was in Colorado for December and January, uh, and it, we were getting dumped on left, right and center. Was it, was it pretty, uh, <laughs> are you, do you ski at all? Were you able to kind of hit up for a second? Or? I, I ski a little bit, but I did not get on the slopes at all, which was a bummer because nobody was on them. I guess Sundance <laughs> week is like BD time, time to ski. Cause like the skiers don't come. Cause like, it's can be crazy. Cause all the Sundancers and then the Sundancers don't, don't ski. So it would have been a perfect time, but oh man, it's snowed. You'd wake up and there'd be six more inches on the ground every day. Like you could sweep off your porch and then wake up the next morning. And there's six more inches, just the softest powder I've ever seen in my life. So, uh, would have been nice to ski, but that didn't make it on the slopes, unfortunately. The, uh, I do eventually want to go to something like that. Cause I can only imagine the, uh, sort of creative, um, energy that you get from being around like Adobe's got a cool event called Adobe max. That's mostly aimed at designers and photographers and and whatnot, but there is like a little bit of premiere in there, you know. But that's definitely not cinematography at all. But even going there to cover it for Pro Video Coalition, like I get jazzed just by being around other 
you know, creatives and stuff like that. I can't imagine something like Sundance was, uh, what leaving there just being like, I gotta go make stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. It does. It's like, uh, as you leave, like, man, just, I mean, we just released this film. We just premiered it. It's got a long road of, you know, film festivals and fan distributor and all that ahead of it. But, you know, I'm just like, oh man, I can't wait to go out and like make something else, you know, and to, to just, cause it's just like having that audience is just so special. Um, you know, we've made a couple of films that have done well in the past, but you know, when they go almost straight to streaming platforms or have a very short festival run and straight to the streaming platform, you don't really have that, right? Like you can look online and look at reviews and, you know, see people say nice things on Twitter, but that's just completely different than having 300 people sit in your audience and watch your film right for the first time. Like there's just no, there is no substitute for just a really great theater experience. Um, and then actually one really fun, one thing that it Sundance was, uh, I talked to the Canon reps there for about an hour, hour and a half about, uh, so I use Canon cameras on the, on the film that we just shot. Um, you know, just talking about them, about the cameras and, and, and the design and kind of what I was hoping to see in future models. So, um, yeah, just having you kind of be able to, you know, being from Knoxville, Tennessee, you know, it's not like Elliot or New York where you can go down to rental shops or, you know, big stores and actually see all the, all the new stuff. So it's like, oh, it's just nice to see like all the new lenses. Burbank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a whole new showroom. And, um, so that, that, that was a lot of fun as well. It's just, you know, having that energy and, and sort of the, the tech side of it, um, present at Sundance as well. Yeah. The, uh, that brings up two questions in my head. I guess I'll go with the tech one first. Uh, I, I have a C500 Mark II, uh, and, uh, love it, but I have some thoughts. What, uh, what would you like to see in a, re a potential revision? You know, I, I really well, what did you like shoot? 500 or 300? We used the 300, uh, Mark III, and then the C70. C70 uh, is so we, good. The Valens proposition on the C70 is nuts. It is nuts. And they just keep updating the firmware over and over again to, you know, add raw on SD cards, which is amazing. Um, and then, I mean, they got new autofocus, a new intra frame codec they just released that has a smaller bit rate, like just a lot of stuff that, especially for owner operators is just so nice. Um, but yeah, we use the, the C300 and the C70 mostly because, you know, they have the same exact sensor. They have right. mostly the same codecs, uh, at least the ones we shot in, which was, you know, the 4K 10-bit 422. Um, and either obviously wildly different cameras, right? So you can use them in different scenarios. So whether it was, you know, C70 obviously can fly on a gimbal very easy, or if you need to hike into the woods for a while, it's easier to throw in a backpack and, and take right. with you. So, um, yeah, those are the two cameras we used. Um, and oh, and then I think, I mean, I love the C70. I think my big sort of designing switch would be, it's already sort of a small box. I'm just kind of looking over here because I'm looking at it, but uh, it's already sort of a, a, a small box. But, you know, I, I would almost like this back screen is kind of at a weird position for a cinema camera, right? It's like, it's trying to be like a DSLR and it's a little too big for that. You can't really hold it out in front of you for that long of a time. Um, and so I would just, you know, close off that back, throw a V-mount on it, and then almost make it like a, a box and stick the screen off the handle, you know, like like this V300. Um, but other than that, you know, that, I think that thing is pretty pretty amazing for the size and the price and, and what it can do. The, the funny thing about this. So I think that the C 500 and the C 300, you know, Mark two, Mark three are yeah. like basically perfect cameras. Um, and, and I keep saying like, man, I wish the C 70 just had like an SDI port. And then I'm like, well, if it's like that and one other thing, now it's just a C 300. 
Yeah. Like <laughs> that's true. You know, I think it's pretty much all. I mean, yeah, it's pretty much all it's missing is an SDI port, more or less. I can and make the, and the screen, the yeah. higher bit rate raw. Yeah, and the nicer screens do. Um, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, the, the C70 with like a full frame sensor on that would be awesome. I, w- I would love that. But um, but I'm also not crazy about the full frame craze. I only say that because all the lenses they make for these cinema cameras now are full frame lenses. Um, so it'd be nice to actually use the focal lengths that they give you rather than sort of a slightly altered version of that. Um, but agreed. I mean, I think the, the C300 and uh, C500 as well, I haven't used it too much, but thinking about snagging that for a feature I'm shooting in April. Um, so hoping to do potentially a little anamorphic work on that. And uh, the C sats does not with the couldn't pull it off. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 anamorphic on full frame looks really nice. And in yeah. six, I did like a little uh, uh, what do you call it? Not a demo. What do you call it when you make a spot for free for yourself? Spec. Oh, uh, I did it. Spec. I did a spec ad, and uh, yeah, we we used the Atlas anamorphics on the C five hundred, and that just nice. It's insane. Um, even for such like the Orion, the Orion set. Yeah, the Silver Series. They let me um, borrow oh, the, nice. the Silvers. Uh, I actually got to see the Mercuries because I'm like kind of friends with Dan Keynes. He was um, the guy who made Atlas. Oh, cool. He was actually on the yeah, podcast yeah. two years ago. Um, so we were at NAB and he was like, hey, come here. And he like took us into this like secret room that they had at NAB and uh, showed us the new Mercuries, which were like that big and flare. Oh, up. amazing. Those I do have. I've, I do have two pre-orders in for the... Uh, was it the 42 and the 72? They have kind of strange focal lengths, like a 36, a 42, and a, is it a 70, 75, something like that. Something like that. Um, yeah. yeah. So I'm hoping to use those on on the feature I'm shooting. But uh, if not, maybe I'll snag some Orions. But the Orions cover the C500. Uh, some of them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's really, dep- I mean, the thing with the full frame. So I'm actually, I was a, I wouldn't say I was poo-pooing full frame, but I was, de- I, let me, be delicate uh i don't think i don't by any stretch think full frame matters quote unquote right i I, fully you know um alexis super 35 the new alexis super 35 c300 mark 3 super 35 um but the added flexibility of full frame is nice and also um i did a test between the 500 and the and the 300 and while the 300 has a lower noise floor because of the added physical real estate of the larger sensor the noise is smaller so Mm. when you ratchet up the iso it's more easily corrected out it looks more like foam grain on the 500 than the 300. okay Um, and so i found that to be i don't know if that's worth five thousand dollars uh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's certainly like if you're holding the two, you know, objectively looking at the footage, you're like I can do more. The image looks sharper, and you can do more with it when you crank the ISO on the 500. Plus, obviously, the anamorphic looks nice and stuff. But um, mm-hmm. and if and then also you can, you know, if you're shooting primes, just throw it down to super 35 mode, and now you got, you know, two yeah, X or whatever you want to call. Totally. I mean, that's that is a huge a huge help, especially in dock stuff. I mean, the, the beauty of, you know, a full frame sensor on, is that everyone makes a 24 to 70 to eight, right. And like that yep. is such a useful lens in documentary, like as, as much as we all would love to like shoot on beautiful primes and cinema primes, 
a lot of situations just you know it's better to get the shot at 90 percent of the quality than kind of miss the shot at 100 percent quality right um and and so you know on a super 35 that suddenly like becomes not quite wide enough right and so that's why sort of having a full frame option is just so nice on on dock stuff um to the point where like i've used like a panasonic syh on quite a few stuff just because it's it's just so nice to have that range with a full frame sensor and you know you what a 2.8 you can still you know kind of get that uh subject separation that you would get with a faster prime where it, obviously on a super 35 it just becomes a little bit more difficult but still obviously very possible yeah the um oh but what i was going to say about the the coverage thing is like i found that pretty much every quote-unquote super 35 lens above 20 millimeters pretty much covers um yeah like my nice. sigma That's 18 to 35 i can use from 20 to 35 i've got all these tokina cinema zooms here that all cover for the most part um the full like range from like 11 to 135 i think um the orions the orions were weird because there was like one in the middle that didn't cover but everything else did mm. like the wides oh, covered and then there was like a 24 or something that didn't and then i used their 21 that thing was oh. weird dude and that 21 wild. on full frame <laughs> look i mean i could practically see my shoulders like yeah <laughs> i don't see some footage of that i'm just like man i can't think of anything i'd shoot where i would use that but i kind of want to figure something out well the spec we shot i we were shooting in a bathroom so I was sitting on oh, uh, on nice. the sink and looking at someone's face, you know, uh, actually two people's faces because we could stage them, you know, um, and it it worked great for that. Oh, uh, but uh, yeah, it's just, the anamorphic world so crazy. It's just like so much um, new stuff has come out in the last couple of years that it's, you know, it's hard to tell kind of, you know, where's there's a few on those, the cheaper side that I don't think I would use for anything, um, you know, that I really, really, really cared about. But even Lawa, I've always lived both Lawa lenses. The Lawa, Lawa, yeah, I think so. Um, one of those, yeah, yeah, one of those. Those new, like they have the new Proteus um, anamorphics that look pretty sweet. They're kind of in that same price ballpark as as the Mercury's. Uh, obviously, quite a bit cheaper than the Orion's at a two times squeeze. So um, it's a pretty yeah, it's a lot going on. And even the tests I've seen from the one point three three Viltroxes. Uh, look, look beautiful, and they're kind of that sweet spot, you know. Like, I kind of always go back and forth, you know. I know, um, like the deacons of the world are just like that, you know, only use spher spherical lenses and not anamorphics, right? And you know, I'm like, oh, no, I can actually like kind of the you know, vintage look or the anamorphic look, but then every time I'm using them, I'm like, oh, I wish this was more like clinical, <laughs> which I, is weird. So, I can't decide if I am, you know, that person who might be in the deacons camp, where I was like, I just want my image to not be drawing attention to itself too much, right? I want it to to just, you know, focus on whatever it is that I'm shooting. And those Viltrox, they're sort of like, they have a little bit of the anamorphicness to them, but they're really subtle. And like, it still kind of has a, a sort of a, just a beautiful sharpness that I did not expect from such an anamorphic uh, lens that's full frame and under $3,000. So I'm, yeah. I want to try them out, but they're hard to find. I had to, I had to come to terms with the fact that I do, sometimes I am a basic bitch and I do just like fudgy anamorphics like i've got the anamorphic yeah. adapter from lettuce 35 and uh oh yeah, yeah yeah it just it you know you put the cool thing so i got the i don't have it built out right now but on my c500 i got the 40 millimeter cannon pancake and then oh, just yeah. the 
that Anamorph X adapter. So it's this small setup, right? It's only that big, but I have Anamorph, uh, uh, autofocus Anamorphic. So, oh, okay. Right. That's which is kind of cool. cool, but the adapter's not like optically amazing. So it really does fudge yeah. everything up, but I'm like, it, that, but that looks cool. Like I, I, yeah. I like it. <laughs> totally. Totally. I mean, for, so in the film that we just created at Sundance, King Cole, there's sort of a magical realism side, right? It's it's kind of part documentary, part fable. And for that magical realism side, you know, we wanted the image to look different than everything else, right? Like right. a lot of the film is sort of in a, in a world that is, um, you know, very sort of observational. Like this is how things are. This is how things have been for, for 40 years, right? So everything in that world is, is locked down and it's on sort of perfect spherical lenses, right? Sharp corner to corner. It's just like, here's the world as you see it. Um, and we just sort of let people move throughout the frame, but we ourselves are just observers. And then sort of the other side of, of the film is sort of this, the magical realism elements that is imagining what could be, right? So the, the film's about the region of Appalachia and central Appalachia and coal country. Um, and so we're sort of imagining like, what is, who are we beyond coal, right? Who are we as, as a community, as a region? um you know when king when the king is no longer around and so for those um those scenes and and that section we wanted something that had you know a little bit of a magical feel to it so i tested a bunch of uh vintage lenses kind of the the usual suspects like i i love that old contact zeiss you know you know 50 millimeter 1.4 or the the hollywood the f2 28 Uh, and i've used those in a bunch of projects in the past and then of course the the helios 44 um but actually see that's that one's too much for me i like i like it i love it but i would never use it yeah no exactly i I did it i was like i bought it and nothing sitting on my shelf it was forty dollars but it's been sitting on my shelf for about six years um and using our fun just a couple just for fun things um but we ended up landing on a a voitlander heliar classic which is a really new okay it only came out like two years ago they make nice lenses they make really nice lenses, but this one is, is strange because they specifically made it to sort of be a modern Helios, I think. And so it has sort of just really interesting, like bubbly bouquet, but it's not overwhelming. But then it doesn't have all the sort of, um, you know, problems that a lot of vintage lenses do, right? Whether it's chromatic aberration or just really hazy or it gets, you know, blown out um, or washed out. And so it's just like, I mean, it's just a beautiful, beautiful lens that just adds this sort of kind of weird magicalness to it, but still like it's sharp and especially in the middle, just sharp and pretty and, uh, you know, just kind of renders a really, really cool images. So it's always fun kind of testing, testing different lenses like that. Yeah. That, man, that makes me think of a few questions, but, uh, the, oh, and then there's that one from before. I'll remember them all. I'm, uh, you know, three years yeah, of yeah, podcast, yeah. I'm good at remembering. Yeah. <laughs> man, that first year was a lot of, I'll show me. Um, in, so, uh, in, on top of the lens choice for the sort of magical realism sections, were you doing anything with the lighting or any kind of production design or anything like that? Or were you just kind of still trying to stay within that more naturalistic look? Mm-hmm. Well, since most of the, the magical realism elements are all, they're all outdoors, I think almost hundred percent. Hold on, I'm playing the movie back in my mind. Um, but yeah, so most of them are all outside. And so we were working with a lot of natural light and, you know, as you know, as you know, all the cinematographers know, kind of, uh, listening to this podcast is great. cinematography is kind of first and foremost, great light. Right. And then it's, and then it's, um, production design, right. Or just location, right. If you, if you're in a really, really nice location, it's generally easier to get pretty images. 
Um, you know, I did my travel doc series in Iceland for three weeks one time. And I was like, man, the sun sinks, just hangs so low along the horizon that it's impossible to not get a pretty image. Right? This, the light's always soft. It's always good. And you just need to figure out, you know, where to position yourself with your subject to, to maximize that. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what we really focused on is like, you know, I'm from West Virginia. My wife's from West Virginia. We spent most of our lives in Appalachia, you know, Tennessee, Virginia, Kentucky. Um, and so we just knew sort of all these different locations. And if we didn't, we'd ask, you know, our friends or, you know, our associate producer who lives in West Virginia, like, you know, where can we get something like this, right? Where can we get a forest that is just all moths on the ground and big pines and all these things. And so it was really about, you know, finding great locations to sort of heighten the the magical realism elements along with the lensing, along with, you know, the camera movements and along with all the other, all the other different things that, you know, make a great image and sort of evoke that feeling. Sound design, I imagine. Oh man, I, I, this, this film. So our, um, our post sound supervisor was, uh, Alex Furman, who was the post supervisor or did some of the sound. I'm not sure if she was officially the post supervisor, but she was one of the sound designers on everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, which is maybe the best sound design movie of uh, the last decade. So yeah, man, we went all out on the sound design for this film. It's just a completely sort of a transportive experience. And that's, that's why it's so cool to see have people watch it in theaters. Like we wanted to make it visually like grander and bigger than anything we've done before. We want to just sound like you just want to be enveloped by this film. Um, and one person you know, commented or a couple of people commented like that was more of an experience than a film. And we're like, oh, perfect. amazing. That's exactly kind of, yeah, kind of what we were looking for is like, it's just went to experience, you know, 80 minutes of, of, um, you know, this place and this story. Yeah. I, uh, I actually interviewed Larkin Seipel for, uh, the podcast, uh, the DP of everything everywhere all at once. But it's mm. funny cause I interviewed him before the movie had come out and I, I oh, got wow. to see it early. And so he and I were just kind of chatting like, well, you know, hopefully people like it. We'll see. We'll see what it does. <laughs> and if it makes like $70 million comes out of one of the biggest movies yeah. of the year. <laughs> well, and every he I've talked to since has brought it up at least once. So it's like, it's, man, I got to get him back on and hopefully he'll, hopefully he'll come back on. Oh, he, oh, he totally said, yeah. Uh, but, uh, that movie's that movie's so good. I love it. 11 Academy Awards casual. Yeah, no big deal. Uh, I did want to ask because um, you had mentioned about, uh, you know, what what's Appalachia going to do when Cole leaves? I was wondering, has is Cole kind of the, maybe not the, but is Cole the main factor of keeping that community locked in place culturally? Because it does, even from that little like trailer you showed me that, you know, the football team is, tapping a lump of coal and stuff like how, it's odd to me that an energy resource is so central to uh, uh the identity of an area mm -hmm. for sure I, and the identity really i think comes from or two factors the first big one is it's jobs right so it's it's how people make a living and it's a it's a tough place to live especially where most of the coal is extracted is like you are sort of deep in the you know the hollers and deep in the the mountains and so if you weren't going there to mine coal, there's just no reason for humans to go there, right? Like it was, mm -hmm. it was, uh, you know, hunting ground for the uh, Native Americans before you know we arrived, and so um, as Europeans and people who are trying to extract coal, and so you know, it's it's not a place that's easy to like 
build towns and build cities just you know it's just um even to this day a lot of the main coal towns that were sort of the, some of the richest towns in the east coast in the 30s and 40s don't have highways to them just because it's too difficult and too expensive to do um yeah. and so as as the coal industry sort of bottoms out you know I think, um, you know, back in at its peak in the 40s, you know, 140,000 people worked in the coal industry in West Virginia. Now it's 12,000. I mean, it's 90% of the jobs have, have evaporated for lots of factors, mostly automation, right? You, you use machines to do the jobs that lots of lots of people used to do. Um, but the sort of political side and the cultural side of, of coal is still sort of the main pride of of the region of the area. And I think that's the hardest thing to move, move past is, you know, once you've become defined as this one thing, right? Like Appalachia value is totally wrapped up in how much coal can you provide for the rest of the nation, right? It's, you know, it was used to fight wars. It was used to build the cities. It was used to make steel. It was, um, you know, all these things that people found a lot of pride in as, as they should, right? It's, um, and then as it's sort of the public opinion on coal has turned, Right. I think a lot of people in the region feel a little slighted. Right. It's like we did this extremely dangerous and tough job. That's I mean, honestly, it's just a you know, you're underground for 10 or 12 hours a day. Right. It's not like a job that that um, other than the fact that it pays really, really well, especially for Appalachia. It's no job that every human, ever, any human really wants or should partake in. Right. It's just not how we're, we're meant to live um, underground. So I think that has sort of contributed to the the cultural hold of coal right it's like it's a it's a um community thing a lot of people talk about it as a brotherhood you know as something that's dangerous you know it's, it's had a very sort of almost similar terms of like the military whereas right. because it's so difficult because it's sort of almost looked down upon in a lot of ways it actually binds bonds people together um and then that's sort of obviously seeped into the politics it's seeped into um you know different areas of the community and at the same time, there's this other side of Appalachia that is, you know, about storytellers and music and, and, you know, all these different, you know, art forms, um, you know, some of the greatest musicians are just people you've never heard of sitting on their porch playing amazing, you know, banjo and fiddle and guitar and all those different instruments. So, you know, it's, it's sort of this weird dichotomy between the two, right? It's, and I think there's, there's some, some tension, um, at least it seems like it from like a, from a outsider standpoint, but ultimately it's the same place and the same people and the, and, um, sort of the same, uh, individualistic and self-reliance, um, nature of, of the people who, who live there and grew up there and have been there a very, very long time. Yeah. I always wonder when stuff like that, um, happens to where like auto, in this case, automation taking over the majority of the jobs in a, I guess, in my opinion, my personal opinion, in a just society, automation frees up people to pursue more human things. You know, we we aren't in we were not born to work. We were born to create. Mm -hmm. uh, I think isn't necessarily a controversial st uh, stance, but instead, automation either makes people destitute or. Uh, makes people work even harder. I like the the one phrase I, I've heard a lot is like, oh, you know, if, if a factory makes a hundred pins an hour with twenty people, and they get a machine that makes two hundred pins an hour, they just make those people sit around 
you know, instead of taking half the day off, they, they are there the whole day and they now run right, surplus right. of pins. Yep. Um, yep. Because we're so tied, at least in this country, but certainly many Western countries, to the idea of the work being who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I know plenty of people who, who, and especially older generations, you're about my age, um, I'm sure you've heard like, oh, you know, you got to be um, loyal to your company because they are going to take care of you and we know better now, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, yeah, may have been a truth. I think, I mean, for, for my father it definitely was for my wife's father, it was, um, but I, I think what's kind of interesting about it is the automation actually does, um, it does provide, I think if I get the exact term you use, but it does provide a, a sort of an easier life or, or, or more chances for humans to create rather than work. Right. It's just not the people who were doing the work before. Right. It's like the automation sort of sort of uh, obviously eliminates those jobs. Right. If we're talking about coal mining, whether it's you know the, the automation of mining coal is like it takes those jobs and it's not those people necessarily who are now have the free time to create. And so so that that's sort of the unjust nature. Right. It's it's to some degree. And I'm not getting right? paid to create. Right. And to some degree, like, I mean, if you look at my wife, right, her, her father was a coal miner, her grandpa was a coal miner, her great grandpa was a coal miner. Right. And. And because they did those jobs, but now through automation, like look, there's not as many of those jobs, you know, um, there obviously are women in the mines, not a ton, but you know, instead she's a filmmaker, right? She's the one who's sort of benefiting from, you know, the, the sort of struggles of, of the past generations. Um, and so I think that's, that's the tough part, right? Is the automation obviously, um, creates generally, uh, wealth on a larger scale, right? Of whether it's in, on the coasts and the cities or for creators in different locations. But it doesn't necessarily happen for the people in the community that you know lost their jobs. Um, and Appalachia is a great example of that. Um, there's a line in our film that I think it was in the 1960s. West Virginia was the 12th richest country in terms of just wealth created in the country, but it's been 49th or 50th in terms of actual on the ground living conditions um, because you know all the wealth that the, the state created went other places. Right? It went out of right. state. It went to other people. Um, and so that's, I think that's, you know, it's tough to see people sort of hold on to that when it's like, no, you can be, we can be something else, but we have to let go of this past, right? We have to let go of this identity that we're nothing without coal, um, because we can be other things, but we have to imagine what that could be in order to move past and, or move on. Yeah. I mean, the, the creative in me kind of goes like, and, and I'm an idiot, but like, you know, you, you can romanticize that history you know it's it's a relatively uh i don't know everything but it it from my limited knowledge it is a relatively unproblematic thing that you could uh celebrate about your your cultures you know your 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 area's history as opposed to you know slavery uh <laughs> and uh you know and you can romanticize that and be really cool about it and move on you don't have to be a part of mm-hmm. like lineages don't go forever for a reason Otherwise, like yeah. some people might be against certain levels of progress, but no progress is uh, stagnation. And I don't think stagnation right. has a good definition anywhere. Yeah, no, totally. And I think that's that's really the what we're trying to get across in the film is like we can be proud of this and still want better for the future. Um, and, I, and I think it's kind of one of the, it's definitely the most fun film I've ever been a part of because visuals were so important in telling that story right like I've, I've shot quite a few documentaries where it's just like just get the shot just get the story make sure you don't miss it you know and this 
you know, you can't do it, then someone else will find someone else who can't, right? More or less. Where this just felt so much like, you know, especially for Elaine, she was the only person who could make this specific film, which is pretty exciting. Um, and then I kind of in turn feel like I was one of the only few people who could shoot this film and shoot it in the way that we did. And so that made it a lot of fun. Um, because that's the kind of story we want to tell, right? Is you can be sort of proud of your past and still move on. And then you look at some places that are, you know, tied to coal country, like the Rust Belt, right? Like the steel, steel country is like, they have sort of, you know, uh, I mean, look, Pittsburgh is like a great example of a city that, you know, had that giant fallout in the seventies and eighties and had to come to terms with the fact like we need to be something else. And now, you know, Pittsburgh's growing and it's unbelievable and it's got tech and, and healthcare and all and universities and all these different things that they've really sort of leaned on and, and, you know, been able to move past, um, and but, Sydney you know, again, that all comes back to, yeah, it all comes back to, yeah, exactly. Sydney Crossley and sweet, sweet hockey. And, but sometimes it comes back to geography, you know, it's, it's a town that's right on a giant river and has, uh, you know, a lot going for it in that, in that way. Whereas in central Appalachia, it's so difficult to get in and out of, um, you know, it's hard to sort of be reborn in a place that people can't visit or people can't find or have no reason to in a lot of ways, other than just, you know, come come visit for its beauty because it's an unbelievably beautiful place. Yeah. Well, and, it, and the thing that I'm kind of uh, stoked for you guys about is it does seem like a, it's not a downer of a dock. You know, I, I, I could see how easily this could be like a, oh, this could be a sadness dock. Uh, and it seems very uh, joyful in a way, which is cool. A hundred percent. Yeah. Actually at Sundance, we were, came out of a few screens and we're just like, how nice is it that like we made a film that's hopeful and that people are like smiling as they leave. Right. I mean, the previous two big films that my wife and I made together were both about the opioid crisis. And though they were films about people who are trying to, to help, um, and make change, it's still, you know, just such a heavy, heavy topic. And that takes a toll on you for doing that for three years as a filmmaker, but also it's, you know, you're showing to audiences because it's important and you want, you know, want people to sort of connect to the characters that you filmed. But at the same time, you know, having a film that that is joyful in a lot of ways and like is about hope and imagination and about the future, you know, is is a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Yeah. The uh, is perfect uh, lineage to that uh, earlier question I was going to ask, and then I'll, uh, you know, let you get out of here in, in a couple more questions. But uh, going to I know that um, going to festivals i don't think a lot of people know this if they're starting just getting into filmmaking but like going to festivals is where your stuff gets picked up it's not promoting it online it's not having a big twitter or instagram following it's literally showing it any festival let alone sundance and so i'm wondering uh with your experience because you're you actually have won some uh, or at least been nominated for some pretty intense awards uh, you know, uh, the Academy Award, if I'm not mistaken, at least one nominated for an Academy Award, and then uh, won two Emmys, which is pretty exciting. They can fucking go, bud. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, what is the sort of, uh, I suppose, for lack of a better term, networking experience at a Sundance versus Ohio Film Festival? You know, whatever, just like one of these kind of smaller ones that are still incredibly valuable to go to. I think. Mm -hmm. My buddy's doc, who got picked up by MSNBC, nominated for an Emmy. Um, I think nice. it got seen. At, I think it was Ojai. Like it was one of those small, you know, Santa Barbara, something like that, where yep. you still, those opportunities are still there. But I imagine Sundance is a different level of uh, person walking up to you. Yep. Yeah, no, for sure. 
I mean, I think that's one of the cooler things of, um, at Sundance is, you know, I was had our third or fourth screening, you know, probably one of the smaller theaters. It was like a eight 30 in the morning. I was like, okay, this is probably going to be our least well-attended, um, screening. And it was, but it was, you know, still maybe three fourths full in a small theater. But afterward, a couple of people from Zeiss walked up to me and said, wow, that was really pretty. And I'm glad you used Zeiss CP freeze on, you know, some of your film. And I was like, oh, sweet. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's just like, people like that, right? Like the Canon reps are there, you know, the Zeiss reps are there. And then obviously just the amount of filmmakers that are there, um, who have a chance to see your film, you know, there's, there's filmmakers who I incredibly, um, admire and love their work in, in the doc space, um, that were at our screenings, you know, and, and just, you know, connect with, with them and, and watch their films. And, um, you know, it's just, I don't think you can beat that type of, of networking, if you will. Right. It's like now there's, eight, nine, 10 directors who had films at Sundance who have seen my work on the big screen, right? You just, you can't, there's no, um, substitute for that. So I think that alone is, is exciting. But, and then I think at the same time, like any other film festival has that same possibility, right? It's like, it's, you know, at Sundance, obviously it's Sundance filmmakers, but if it's Atlanta or Cleveland or Nashville, it's like, it's still filmmakers who are making great work. You know, I've, I've made films that have gone over 40 on the Sundance or on the uh, film festival circuit, right? It's like right. 40 rejections on film freeway or something. So like, I know that it's not easy to get into any specific film festival. And so I think every, every film festival is a chance to, you know, meet people and, and potentially collaborate with folks and, and find other people that, um, you know, you can get your work out to. So, uh, but yeah, Sundance is definitely kind of one of those, one of those next levels. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, that that was a hard kind of lesson to learn when I was a bit younger of like, oh, all this effort I put into to like, well, I, I shouldn't even say I put effort into it, but I, me and a bunch of my friends all had the same, you know, kind of like late millennial idea that like, oh, you'll be seen. And it's like, no, you, it's still film festivals. I went to a producing yeah. class when I was very young uh, and the guy was like, telling us about, I don't know if they do this anymore, but basically these, these distributors would like rent out hotels and they would clear out all the beds out of all the rooms. And then you would just go from like room to room showing your short or whatever. And then they'd buy oh, it or not. And it was like a whole oh, fish market for, for like film. Speed, speed dating. Yeah. For films. Yeah. For distributors. And uh, I guess they don't do that anymore. But in my head, I was like, oh, that's old. We don't do that. We're on the internet now. And it's like, nope. Festivals. Yeah. <laughs> Keep doing them. Yeah. Keep doing them. It's true. I mean, yeah, the internet. It's like where content goes to die in a lot of ways. So yeah, that's <laughs> not this no. podcast. <laughs> not this podcast. No, oh, this one lives. Uh, this one lives on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've had a lot of fun. We're a little over, so I'll, I'll let you go. But I end the All right. uh, podcast with the same three questions. Um, gotcha. So the first one, and this is, I'm starting here because I've learned that this one in, invokes a long pause. Uh, a lot of people ask what the best piece of advice they ever got was. And I found the answer is always like, stick to it. So I want to know what the worst advice you ever got was. Mm, that's a good question. Well, it wasn't actually um, advice I received, but I was in the same car of someone else giving it. So I'll, I'll, I'll do that. But there was, I was working on, um, I won't name what, because then that person listens, they might figure it out it was them. But um, <laughs> I, was work, I was working on a show. I've, I've only ever AC'd one show in my life, uh, and it was this show. Um, the DPs, they were great. Uh, and then there were some PAs, and one of the PAs asked, like, oh, I want to be a DP. Like, how do I how do I become 
you know, a DP, how do I get to do what you all do? And the DP, you know, a, a generation, half generation, you know, above me, um, kind of went through the very standards, like, oh, you know, try to get like a job at a rental house and work there for four or five years, like learn all the equipment and then, you know, try to become an AC on smaller level things and then you'll know, work your way up through the ladder. And while I think that's great advice, and I think everyone just gives the advice of whatever they did, right? Like that right, general right. advice. I was like, you know, this was like six years after I picked up a camera, you know, just had finished two Netflix films as the DP and was working on another. So I'm kind of like listening to this guy, like, man, that's like 10, 12 years of work to get to like, you know, well, this, this point where, you know, um, and not even probably so where that person who's doing the vice is now, right. That's probably 20 or 25 years down the line. So I would say, you know, it's, there's the old models of sort of working your way up through the system. And then there is the new way of, of teaching yourself and, and just figuring it out. Right. And just doing your own thing, right. There's no substitute to making your own work. Um, because it's the only thing you specifically can uniquely do. Um, and so I would just say, yeah, if, if, you know, if you're trying to be a great DP, just shoot, shoot, shoot and make as much work and complete the work, right. Just shooting isn't, um, you know, isn't enough. You have to actually have completed work, right? Like all the pretty shots that I really, really love in King Cole are nothing without the completed film in a story, you know, that tells a story and, and actually functions as a film. Um, so I would say, yeah, that was probably the worst advice I've heard given was, you know, sort of work, work basically work your way up the corporate ladder of, of the film industry for 25 years. And then maybe you could be a DP where I'd be like, no, just grab a camera and start shoot, just start shooting. <laughs> when your back's blown out, that's when you can finally <laughs> say one up. Exactly. Uh, second question. Uh, you are, um, programming a double feature with King Cole. What's the other film? Ooh, Ooh someone actually said this the other day. Um, someone stole my idea, but someone stole your idea yeah, actually, but, but I actually, I've not seen the film that they said you should scream with this one. It was our, our color. It's actually a few weeks ago. They made a film about, uh, oh. diamonds, I believe in Africa and there's similar, similar things, but, um, I would say I would probably choose Bombay Beach by Amal Harrell. Um, yeah. I I love that movie. It has a sort of a similar um, kind of just whimsiness to it. I mean, King Cole might be a little more serious, but uh, Bombay Beach has a little bit of that that um, sort of heaviness mixed with reality, mixed with magical realism, mixed with whimsy, and so. I think that'd be a pretty nice pairing and very different parts of the, the country, right? One's in the deserts of, I believe, California, but it'd be in uh, somewhere else in the, in the in the Southwest, but, and then obviously central Appalachia, you know, very opposite of the desert. Um, and so, yeah, I think that'd be a pretty good pairing. That's a great one. And they're uh, both not super long, you know, not like three hour movies back to back. It's like, <laughs> we love a 90 minute film. Oh, <laughs> They were at 78 minutes. Perfect. They're like, oh man, 78 minutes. Perfect for a dog. Oh, that's oh, <laughs> lovely. That's awesome. Yeah. I was, I was the other, last night or not last night, like two nights ago. I was like, you know what? I, I gave, I didn't give Batman. What was the last Batman food? Not the Batman, but, um, oh, Dark Knight uh, Returns or whatever. Yeah. Dark, Dark, Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. I was like, I didn't give that one a fair shake. Cause everyone said it's their favorite now. And I'm like, all right, I'll watch this again. And I turn it on at the little, like, progress bar pops up and it says like 241 and i went oh come on yeah. <laughs> like nope i'm out <laughs> damn it never mind i started this oh, all like, people, are, people are saying that's the best one in retrospect i need to go and uh rewatch that then because obviously think, it's the dark knight right i, I will I, say you know. i will say now having rewatched it i i get why people say that now because having distance from 
the just the absolute white hot fervor of the Dark Knight makes yeah. Dark Knight Rises better. Like you mm-hmm. just watch it for what it is versus not being the Joker. You know, not being perfect. Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, yeah. Now I do that have tonight. to give it three hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's true. And Michael Caine obviously just fucking destroys you by the end of it. So it's it's good. Everyone's good. Oh yeah. Um. But okay. So final question. I asked this one of all the uh, documentarians. Uh, what is your shoe recommendation? Shoe recommendation. Because all the documentarians be like, standing all day. This is like, this is actually funny because my wife always says, "Don't ask Current about shoes." <laughs> yes. So I'm one of those like I'm one of those like uh, hardcore minimalist guys. Actually, um, okay. I'm pretty I'm pretty anti shoe in general. So anything with padding, um, I feel like just does more damage than it does than it helps. Um, so I am a uh, Vivo barefoot or zero shoes guy. Um, there you go. But to be fair, if I'm doing something specific like, like you know gimbal work or something that needs a little bit of padding, I'll I'll get something with a little extra. But I haven't found quite found it yet. Um, but I would say probably the thing I wear most often are Go Ruck boots because they still have, sure. uh, yeah, not too much padding. Um, and they don't have you know they're not zero drop from back to front, but you know they're they're fairly close so. Um, but yeah, don't get me on the, on the shoes and the, the evils of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also look like you can go a two and stole it. That'll work for you. Yeah. If people let me go barefoot, I would. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. I mean, uh, most people are like, uh, Blundstones or Hoka's, but recently I've, I've started to get new answers, you know, some Adidas yep. over here and someone yeah, yeah. to wear them. So we'll just, I, but my... I'm, the conceit is by the end of the season, I'm going to create a list of all the shoes that have been suggested and just host out a lot. Most cameras used and most shoes worn. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you yeah. can probably tack one for minimalist shoes or and or barefoot, which is where <laughs> I'll be. I'm, I'm the anti-Hoka. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll just put an asterisk and it's like, it's just him. It's just this guy, yeah. Well... Thanks so much for spending the time with me, man. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, man. Congrats it. on the film and and uh, thank you so much, success. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the F at Art Matbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com/Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>